The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. What would your most self-actualized life look like? Hey, listeners. Welcome to In the Arena. I'm Jackie Goldberg. And I'm Leah Smart. And today we are joined by Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman. So welcome, Scott. Thanks for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Awesome. So we are we are so excited to jump in with Scott today. But to give you a little bit of an introduction, Scott is a psychologist. He's also an author. He is focused on some really fascinating topics around intelligence, human potential, creativity. Scott also has a podcast called The Psychology Podcast. It's focused on human possibility. So check into that. And he's just released his most recent book called Transcend, which is the new science of self-actualization. So the book is really a culmination of his research and combining the wisdom of some of the psychologists from the 1930s, 1960s, including Abraham Maslow, where he He's really revised and looked at how we how we view this hierarchy of needs and how we self-actualize. So I was introduced to Scott's podcast and to his work and was really intrigued and so excited, shared with Jackie, and she was too. And so we can't wait to share some of the the learnings and what you know what Scott has to say with us on this book. So we'll go ahead and jump in. Thanks so much, Scott, for joining us. I was a psychology major in college, so this is right up my alley. I I love what you're up to and fascinated by these topics. So, so excited to jump in with you today. But as always on In the Arena, we uh, love to jump in first by getting to know you through some speed dating questions. So hope you're ready to get a little vulnerable with us today. Heck yeah. Always always (laughs) up for that. (laughs) Awesome. So I'll kick us off. So, so Scott, you're right now um, in Santa Monica, but normally you're based in New York. And so Leah and I would love to know the first place that you'd grab dinner in New York once restaurants reopen. Oh, I miss uh, Senza Gluten in, so- in uh, the, the Soho area. What kind of food is that? It's an Italian restaurant that's 100% gluten-free because I have uh, celiac disease. Oh, so. that sounds great. That sounds yeah. amazing. My, my good, my good, and people know what I'm talking about. <laughs> the even, your non, audience. even your non-gluten people can get excited about something like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they have good Italian food for anyone, and I made no profits off of advertising for them. <laughs> awesome. And then Scott, maybe this goes without saying, but who would be your personal hero in your field? In my field. In the world, Michael Jordan, because I'm watching The Last Dance right now. He's inspiring me again from my childhood. But in my field, Abraham Maslow, uh, because he he wrote about this the, the idea of self-actualization, which is something that is just not talked about much in our education system uh, or even in our society more broadly today. And it, and it was all the rage in like the 50s and 60s, and then it disappeared. Well, we can't wait to hear more about that and um, how it relates to your book. So we'll jump into that. Um, but before we do, beaches or mountains? And this is a good question for California. Yeah, definitely beaches. Definitely. Mm-hmm. And then Scott, what is the most useful thing that you've bought on Amazon? Oh, boy, useful. Uh, probably uh, an electric bug zapper that I got recently. It's like, 
it, it's like it, you hear feedback, beesh, 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 and it's uh, it's oddly uh, satisfying. You know you've got them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know you got them, and it's uh, it makes me a little bit concerned that I enjoy uh, buzzing, zapping them so much, but. You know, it's it, it, it. I didn't know what to do because there were so many in my apartment. So I looked at Amazon. What do you do? And there's like Amazon number one bestseller and like all the reviews. They're like 500 reviews being like, this is the most satisfying thing ever. I'm like, OK, <laughs> I won't feel bad about myself then. <laughs> I mean, I, I totally give you permission to zap mosquitoes because I do not believe in getting bitten by them. So I'm, I'm with yeah. you. Yeah. And listen, yeah. if it's an Amazon number one bestseller, you got to take the word for it. That's exactly right. Because what's popular is good, right? That's no, right. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Says Scott Barry Kaufman. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's probably not true at all. Yeah. Um, cool. Well, Scott, so let's let's jump in a bit. Sure. As is also customary on in the arena, just tell us a little bit about who you are, some highlights of your your journey so far that would be valuable to hear. Uh, yeah. So I. I'm a humanistic psychologist. I started off my career as a cognitive scientist studying the brain and the mind and human intelligence. I wanted to redefine how we thought about intelligence and the way that we measure intelligence and use it in high stakes testing situations like for gifted education programs or for special education programs. My research interests morphed over the years from that to creativity, to understanding what do creative thinkers do? What do they do differently from others? And then that morphed into my most recent interest, which is humanistic psychology and self-actualization. And the, the thread running through all that research, though, is self-actualization. I didn't realize it, though, till more recently. You know, when I started off, I didn't understand that what I was redefining intelligence I was redefining intelligence really as self-actualization. I had a much clunkier definition uh, in my book, Ungifted, Intelligence Redefined. My definition of intelligence was, uh, I should have just said self-actualization instead. I used all, used all these words. But uh, so that's been kind of a thread running my research. And a lot of that stemmed from my early ed- educational experiences that weren't optimal, So we should say. And I really saw a lot of greater potential for my friends as well in special ed and didn't understand why their potential wasn't being seen at all by the teachers and the parent, even some of the parents. Not to jump too far ahead, but I loved your part in the book where you talked about getting into the school under opera and then switching to psychology. I loved, I just loved the, the angle, the pathway. That's exactly right. I was just going to say, I think that's a great kind of transition because your most recent book, Transcend, which we really want to dive into today, we'd love if you can kind of share with our listeners what Transcend is all about, giving perhaps a brief intro to Abraham Maslow, his hierarchy of needs, and tell us, you know, a little bit about that and we can take it from there. I was teaching a course at University of Pennsylvania uh, called Introduction to Positive Psychology, Uh, It was a course that was usually taught by Angela Duckworth, who wrote the book Grit. And she was working on her book Grit. And she said, hey, Scott, do you want to teach this course for me? And I was like, yeah. (laughs) And it ended up being one of the most meaningful things I've ever done. Uh, and I ended up it turned it to like a four year of me, four years of me teaching it. She's like, you can have it <laughs> as long as you want. It was so much fun, so meaningful. And as I was teaching that course, I 
was researching the history of the field of positive psychology and I discovered all these writings of the humanistic psychologists in the, in the, from the 30s to 60s and like people like Eric Fromm and Raul May, Charlotte Bueller and Karen Horney and of course Abraham Maslow, Carl Rogers. These, these individuals really sang, sang to me uh, in a way that even the field of positive psychology wasn't necessarily singing to me. Uh, it was really, there was such a focus on becoming a whole person and your whole integrated self and self-actualization and creativity topic that already interested me at that point, but just grabbed me. And then I, it, one rabbit hole led to another rabbit hole. And I realized that Matt, Abraham Maslow, I read his his, his personal journals. I realized that he was working on a theory of transcendence. He was he argued that self-actualization wasn't pinnacle of human motivation, wasn't the highest motivation that humans can have. And that was really interesting to me. And I also realized a lot of other things, like he never drew a pyramid to represent his hierarchy of needs. Everyone depicts it as a pyramid. So I was like, what the heck? I, I felt a purpose. I felt a purpose to to uh, to, to talk about uh, what what he actually meant about self-actualization, not how it's depicted in in so many textbooks and in and in on the internet. <laughs> I remember learning about that in my psychology days, that pyramid. And I would say, even if you didn't study psychology, it's like the one thing that people go to and remember. Mm-hmm. Now I want them to remember Kaufman's sailboat. That's right. Let's yeah, hear I about the sailboat. Yeah, tell us about the sailboat. Yeah, so Maslow really, he didn't, instead of emphasizing that human needs were in this sort of lockstep progression, like life is some sort of video game, you know, where you get a certain level of connection or something. And then once you unlock, you know, the next level, you can move on and then you never have to return to the prior level. He he just didn't view human development that way. He said human development is always two steps forward, one step back. We're constantly trying to figure out, you know, our, our, where we want to develop, what we want to do. And so I wanted to think of a metaphor that would really work with that. So I worked with a designer, uh, Andy Ogden, who, who noted that the sailboat is a great metaphor for the security versus growth distinction that the Maslow was really emphasizing. That's what he was really focusing on in his theory that gets overlooked is that uh, connection and that dynamic tension sometimes between insecurity and growth. When we feel our most insecure, that's when we're least likely to be motivated for growth because we want to secure the boat. Uh, and we don't open up the sail until we feel like that boat is secure enough. Um, but if you don't open the sail ever, you're not going to go anywhere. You know, there's no, you know, you need a direction, you need a meaning, you need a purpose. And even when we have a purpose, well, the best, the best laid plans, what's the, what's the expression? I'm, I'm trying with expressions. The last, the best laid plans go to rest or something. Anyway, what I'm trying to say is sometimes even when we have a, a purpose, well, waves can come crashing down on us that we never would have expected, you know, and uh, there's a vast unknown of the sea, but, but you have to keep moving in that sea. You have to just keep going. You have to keep, uh, uh, choose growth is, you know, we can move, we can, we can easily stay uh, in the fear zone and, and stay there or in the, in the insecurity or stay in the boat. We can hide under in the boat in, uh, but, that what kind of life is that scott would you mind for people who don't know the the boat can you tell us that the parts of the boat in growth and security absolutely so 
in the security, uh, the analogy with psychological needs are the need for safety, the, uh, the need for connection, and the need for a healthy self-esteem, a, a firm, uh, secure, stable self-esteem that isn't constantly in flux based on validation, the need for validation from others. And once you can have connection, self-esteem, and security in your environment, then you have a really strong vote. But again, you're not, you're not moving very far in terms of your own self-actualization. So growth, the, once you open the sale, that involves the need for exploration, the needs for love, which I distinguish from connection. Uh, it's a high, there's a higher form of love where love is an attitude, not a feeling, you know, you can have, and then, uh, and then you have the need for purpose. And then, my gosh, if you can, if you can integrate all of that and be a, harmonious unit of a sailboat then you may just get lucky to to experience transcendence but that's not a goal you can't shoot for transcendence as the goal or even self-actualization these are things that that cut that are uh ah oh, you know what they're luxuries of human existence i never put it that way before but uh that, that's how i would i would frame it and uh they're, they're nice but it takes a lot of work something i remember from maslow was and this is probably an assumption, but I just remember learning this was that you have to have the bottom, you know, pillars or steps before you can get to the top. And something that I thought of, you did a, a podcast interview for, for your podcast about Transcend. And I thought of Viktor Frankl. Now, I don't know so much, but I remember, you know, he was a Holocaust survivor. And in the toughest of times when he didn't have the safety or the food or the shelter, right? He was able to deal with it and get by and and look to um, you know something bigger than himself. And I'm sure you can explain it way better. I'm sure you know he's involved in your research, but just curious, like how you kind of look at those two together and where this all comes into play. I talk about Viktor Frankl all the time, and mm-hmm. I in interviews and radio interviews, I constantly bring him up, especially now when people are. Uh, I'm I'm on like the the TV circuit um, talking about uh, COVID coping in, in the world of COVID. And, and I, I constantly bring him up because I'm like, you know, he noted that even under the most dire of circumstances that one could he- imagine about humanity, people were still able to find some joy. And, and those who had some hope or some thought of idea of what they, who they wanted to be when they got out of the concentration camps, what they, how they wanted to be of service to the world, um, we're healthier. And I wonder if now uh, we can really shift our, our, our mind, our mindset from panic to, of, because we don't have, because we have so much uncertainty to thinking about who future vision of ourselves, who do we most want to be when this is over and how can we work towards that even a little bit every day, you know, you don't want to beat yourself up over this. People are might, you know, might feel bad if all they did one day is just 15 steps instead of their 10,000 steps or something. And it's, uh, you know, it's, it, 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 pat yourself on the back for doing 15, you know, it's, you did 15 better than zero. Scott with, with uh, Victor Frankel, I, I love that you mentioned Ikigai in the book and I, I had recently finished Ikigai. And so I was really fascinated by logotherapy and I find having, you know, 
personally dived into therapy myself and also Jackie and I being coaches that therapy tends to pull you back and coaching tends to draw you forward. What is there something innate innate in us that makes us want to be drawn forward? Like this whole idea of self-actualization, this idea of, of Viktor Frankl's work, like what is what is that? Well, my colleague, Martin Seligman, who created the field of positive psychology and the modern day version of it, he has argued that we need to shift our psychotherapy more towards the future, uh, a future-oriented form of psychotherapy. And he calls it, uh, there's a whole field in psychology that cropping up that he's part of perspective science and uh, different researchers are trying to look at that because many people who feel like they have a calling in life feel called by the future. The future, the future is calling them and depressed individuals who are depressed or highly anxious are really it can almost be described as there's a grip on them. They're not being called by the future. They're being uh, held back. They're being, they're being, you know, they're trapped. They feel trapped. You know, if you think about the different feeling of anxiety and depression versus being energized over a purpose there. And, and if you just meditate on the difference in those feelings, you, you do notice a very significant feeling in the body and, and mind as well, broadening of the mind of of possibility versus an extreme narrowing where you you harp on a really tiny thing like that one comment that that person said to you out of the 500 other comments in your podcast channel. Oh, wait a minute, that, was, that wasn't personal at all. <laughs> yeah, it kind of, it's almost like to me, I'm envisioning it's, we had the boat, you know, if you're, if you're in one of those states, you're really like, your anchor is down, you're in the harbor. And then when you're kind of drawn forward, you're opening your sail and letting the, the wind and, you know, the direction take you forward. Yeah, that's, that that's great. You're fleshing out the metaphor for me. I appreciate that. <laughs> Had a visual. Yeah, I appreciate it. Awesome. So, so yeah, this is, this is really helpful. And for people who you know, one of the things that came up when I, I was reading this was uh, purpose. And it's something that's talked about a lot, a lot, a lot, particularly in the, in the work environment. But I think for everyone, I know, you know, having done some research on millennials, understanding that many people in this generation are looking for that purpose. And we're seeing it with companies, you know, shifting their culture and their mission and all of this. But one thing I noticed that holds people back is that feeling of I haven't found it and the feeling of inadequacy that comes with that. And, and it ends up leaving people out. And so I'm curious how you might, you know, advise those people to think about their purpose or all of us, whether we think we found it or not. Well, you don't, there's not just one purpose that, that is within us that we're born with. The whole point of self-transcendence and living a life of self-transcendence is realizing that it's not all about you. <laughs> you, you. You can be called by a need. You, you answer life's questions. That's what uh, Viktor Frankl focused on. Uh, you're, you don't ask the question, what is the meaning of my life? You answer the questions that already exist out there in the world. And there are plenty. If you want a purpose, I can give you a 50,000 purposes right now. You know, there are a lot of people suffering in this world. <laughs> you know, it's not all about you and, and like your 
you know, like, what is my one true thing, seed that I was born within me? You know, self-transcendence is this the state where equally within you and outside of you, you know, the, your, your, your purpose is, is uh, transcends the geographical limitations of your body. And you make a great connection between self and world. So, you know, what are the things out there that, that because of your own unique skill set and, and, and personality, really what need out there does it fulfill, you know, and, and, and finding that is really crucially important. But I think a lot of people think about it as though it's something that a seed that's in you, that's already fully formed, you know, meaning grows and sometimes just making a commitment to something is all you need for that just to set off that meaning making process, even if it didn't start that way, you know, you can commit to things that aren't fully passionate about yet, you know, and they can form. I've always been really surprised. This is such a tangent. That's what I'm known for. It's famous for my tangents, epic tangents, SBK, but um, uh, uh, arranged marriages. I'm always fascinated. The research in that showing just how happy so many of them are, you know, like in India, because you you know we have all these ideas we expect oh well they're they're not going to be happy, but you look at just well there's a lot of unhappy people in America that <laughs> not arranged marriages <laughs> you know it's not like <laughs> we're any better come on, but when you look at arranged marriages you find that just like committing to something and giving it you know room and time and patience for the meaning to develop they develop the meaning, and 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 some of them report it being the most meaningful thing of course they're not all instances of it but I've always been really interested by that. I, I'm looking right now, you know, during quarantine, we're all doing this from our homes. We could have, you may have just heard Leah's dog in the background, but I have a quote here. Commitment is playing for a result to serve our life purpose. And I've always been fascinated by commitment wow. as well. And how there's also another quote. I don't have it here. I thought I did around commitment is, is liberation. So people feel like commitment is confinement, but it's actually liberation because when oh, you can commit is. to something, there's this release that you can let go and you can trust. It absolutely is. Choice is hell. Choice is hell. <laughs> <laughs> choice, too much. Cho- too much choice. Choice is freedom, and yet commitment is also a Choice a is freedom, freedom. Too much choice is hell, and yeah. commitment is meaningful. But I love this concept of not being above humanity, but being a part of humanity that you talk to. And, and this is really that sense of connectedness, right. To, to all of humanity. How, how do we know when we, when we're there? How do we know when we're there? What a great question. So where's there? I guess there to me would be that feeling of connectedness to humanity. Transcendence maybe. Life's not a video game. You know, you don't get, you don't get to, a stage where you're there, ever there. It's a process. It's a process. So you... So let's say to healthy transcendent, as you would refer to it. Yeah. No, you're asking a very good question. I, I have trouble giving easy answers, like quick answers to things. But no, you're, you're absolutely right. Like it's, it's, a, it's, it's an interesting question. So there's different components of my definition of healthy transcendence. It's a... First of all, there's the part of there's a harmonious integration within you before you merge with the world. So there are a lot of people who are searching for transcendence in an unhealthy way because they're 
there's no inner harmony yet. They're, they're, they have so many severe deprivations that they're projecting it into the world. You know, you think of, uh, I don't know if you, I can't think of any examples, but if you can think of any examples of a leader who is narcissistic, you know, or who their just incessant need for power and to dominate, they merge with the world and they transcend themselves, but they're now putting those issues, issues, you know, issues on a whole society. Do you know what I mean? And that's on, I call that unhealthy transcendence. I can't, I don't know if you can think of any examples. Of that. Well, what comes to me also, you know, you talk about Martin Selman, positive psychology, but then there begs a question of happiness. Are you happy at the end of the day? I'm really interested. Here's another tangent. Um, I'm really interested in the connection between narcissism and happiness. I actually published a paper on that and I found that grandiose narcissists do tend to report higher levels of life satisfaction, but they report lower levels of meaning. Mm. And this is why it's really important as I do in my work to distinguish between happiness and meaning. You can live really hedonistic life and I'm not saying it's not fun every now and then, <laughs> trust me. But um, but the, if that's you know all that you're seeking and all you're motivated for all the time, you miss out on meaning, but you also miss out on authenticity. I found that, that narcissism was correlated with lower levels of sense of self, a sense of a stable self, a sense of, because the self is always in flux based on what feedback and validation it's getting from others, you know? So there's, there's much more stable. I've also, we have a paper coming out soon on the correlation between psych, psychopaths and happiness as well. Mm-hmm. I think that'll be uh, really interesting. And if people, by the way, are they wondering if they're a psychopath, you can take a free test on my website at scottberrycoffman.com. You can go to um, self-actualization test tab and I have a light, dark, uh, light versus dark triad test and they'll show you even the balance of the force mm-hmm. uh, you know, within you. Uh, and it's a scientifically validated test. So. I was a little scared when I took that. I was like, oh, my God. On the positive side, you can also take a self-actualization one to see how, how close you are. Oh, to- oh absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it, it, I have the self-actualization test. I have healthy personality test. I'm going to be putting on a new test soon. Uh, we just got a paper published on healthy selfishness, and that'll be up there as well. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, We'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. and so. 
We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. So do I have permission to take this on one other tangent only because you said self and I'm just curious because you had mentioned in in the podcast that you hate the phrase your real self because there is no real self and I'm just curious if you can elaborate on that perspective. What a question. <laughs> Whoa. Yes, okay, the self. Well, wow. Okay, so the the idea of uh is there a real self is a fascinating idea and one that doesn't seem to be scientifically valid. There doesn't seem to be within the brain the distinguishing. It's not like the brain distinguishes between, oh, that's the real, the, that part of the bit of my brain is the real me. And that part of the brain is not the real me. You know, we create these constructs. And, and not only that, but we tend to put things that we make us feel the best about ourselves. We tend to, to make those things the real self. So we'll say, when you actually give people questionnaires, you say, can you please generate in what categories of things, the real self, it's usually the most moral part of you is the real you. And all the other stuff, the, all the uh, naughty bits of you, is, that's not really really you. Well, you know, it's all you, you know, and I think that I hate to, I hate to be the Santa, you know, break it to you that Santa Claus doesn't exist. You know, the, the real you doesn't exist. But there are sides of you that make you feel most alive. They make you feel most energized, most free. These are the things I try to work on and, and what you do with, as a coaches that you try to work on with your clients. And, and I'm really interested in this as well, uh, helping people identify what are the sides themselves that, that, are, that are propelling them forward, where they're growing as a whole person, where they feel their most creative energy, most no, novel and useful to the world energy is, is there. But it's also important to take responsibility for your whole self. I, I think this, all the psychological research suggests that. So to say it's all me, you know, and I take responsibility for, you know, saying cheeky things sometimes. I say resp- I take responsibility for sometimes I get angry. Sometimes I get not just talking about me personally. <laughs> I'm saying, you know, for anyone to recognize this and to figure out how they can integrate that into, into the rest of their self. But with all that said, I do think there are aspects of ourselves that we can get in touch with and we should really learn how to get in touch with that make us feel uh, most alive. That's oh, it's super helpful. And I think for me, the, the first part about the real self not being scientifically valid, I think that just that allows exploration. And I understand now what you said when you said there's no real self and really connecting it to the scientific piece, but totally agree on the taking responsibility for your whole self and the moral part of you being the real self. And as you alluded, Leah and I certainly talk about this in coaching. Awesome. All right. So Scott, one of the things that that you talk about, or you talk about enough in the book is around how this applies to organizations, whether it be the way an organization is structured, you know, the way that the employees feel about the organization. And I'd love for you to share, you know, from both sides as an employee at an organization who's looking for purpose how do I create that in in the space that I'm in in that moment? Like maybe it's not time to move on yet, but I'm looking for that sense of purpose. And then as an employer, how do I create that? Well, there's a literature called job crafting in, 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 in the uh, organizational psychology literature where you can work with your 
hopefully the, the 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 company you work for is amenable to this. But changing the the way that you do your job, you so you still have the same sort of product that you produce, but you craft it in a way that is much more in line with uh, who you want to be and what you want to do in life. You know, we can use our job to also incorporate unanswered callings in our lives. You know, a lot of people, I'm, I'm fascinated with the research on, on, on unanswered callings, you know, people who feel like, oh, I could have been somebody, I could have been an opera singer, but instead I'm a psychologist. Well, instead I go on podcasts, talk about psychology, and I sing opera on the show from time to time when my when my host will let me. And, the, you know, I'm incorporating it. Or, for instance, I always wanted, uh, I always wanted to be a stand-up comedian. And so when I give keynote talks or I give things like that, I, I, I tell lots of jokes, you know, and I, it, it's a way for me to be a stand-up comedian, you know, and, and still do the job. So I, these are just some personal examples of my own life and how I have job crafted my life. I, I've job crafted as a psychologist, uh, like a beep, 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 you know, because when you think about it, you know, I'm such an untraditional psychologist you know like i don't have a tenure track job where i just do research you know i do a podcast i do uh, i write for a scientific american i like to do popular science communication I, I i i give keynote speeches you know i wanted to i was determined because i love psychology so much but i was personally determined to become a psychologist in my own style and in a lot of ways that's what self-actualization is all about is finding your own style and making that work. So my answer to your question is, yeah, find a way of adapting your own job so that it suits your style more and, uh, and, cra- and craft it in the best way you can. Scott, do you believe that passion and purpose are the same thing? You're asking wonderful questions. I don't think they're the same thing, no. I eat chocolate sometimes very passionately. <laughs> That's not your purpose. Yeah, no, but it's not my purpose. And I and I and I've actually asked this question um, to 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 uh, some guests on my show who specialize in purpose and stuff. It's like, well, you know, I wouldn't view. Is it my purpose in life to eat chocolate? You know, where's the dividing line? I think it's a philosoph- It's an interesting philosophical question. You know, and I think it all comes down to again meaning. I don't gather great meaning after I eat a chocolate bar, even though I'm vigorously passionate about it when I'm, while I'm eating it, it doesn't grow anywhere. You know, in, in fact, I am satiated and then an hour later I'm back and doing the same exact thing, eating the same exact piece of chocolate. It didn't grow at all. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't grow as a person. What are the different things in our lives that uh, when we, create our, our hierarchy of of meaning our hierarchy of things that uh our priorities that that give us the deepest sense of satisfaction in our lives those are the things that are more purpose oriented and again so the word purpose might just seem too lofty I, i've been trying to make this point a lot because some people can feel a lot of pressure again to find that one true purpose when we break it down it just means in your hierarchy of meaning you know what is the top of that hierarchy and having a conscious idea of that, but also realizing that that thing at the top of your hierarchy is aligned with your consciously chosen values. That's another aspect of it as well. 
again, with the chocolate example, eating that chocolate, I, I think it's kind of neutral to my value system or maybe even antithetical <laughs> to my consciously chosen value system of wanting to help others, uh, you know, make, make things, you know, world a better place. If I do too much chocolate, well, I'm not doing, I'm not realizing those, those values, what Maslow called the B values, the values of being itself. So I hope that makes sense. I was going to bring back to the happiness question and, and just ask then what is the connection between meaning and happiness? Because when we talked about happiness before, we we brought it back to narcissism and saying, well, actually, they're pretty satisfied in life, even though they have um, not too much meaning. So what is the connection there? Yeah, there's they're correlated for sure. But happiness, the interesting thing is that happiness tends to come along for the ride of meaning meaning doesn't come along for the ride of happiness or and happiness is more than just positive emotions so we tend to feel happiest not when we're just being hedonistic that's actually a myth you know we tend to feel happiest when we are doing things that involve meaning and and there are, there are a lot of sources of meaning uh and that can range from just a connection with a friend, like a, an intimate connection with a friend to in, in mastering something that you're, you really want to master or looking at a lily, a beautiful lily uh, or a rose as you walk or a bush as you walk past on the street and just witness the beauty of it. it we can have really some micro, you know, small micro moments of meaning. It doesn't always have to be like, I'm realizing my purpose every second. You know, mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. there's purpose overload. They're separate constructs, but they're they're correlated. And I think that we have to really understand that that uh, happiness tends to emerge. It's not the goal in itself. The more you try to shoot for it, uh, it, you are much less likely to attain it. And you see that about a lot of a lot of happiness mongers. I'm using all sorts of new phrases today I've never used before. <laughs> I'm going to have to remember everything I said. I don't. I never know what's going to come out of my mouth. A lot of good nuggets and quotes. <laughs> yeah. So Scott, with the with the idea of like this, what I'm hearing is chase meaning, not happiness, or pursue, as you say, you know, wisely pursue meaning over over you know running after happiness. I wouldn't even say pursue. Mm. I would say engage, experience. These are the words I would use more. Again, pursue is so goal-oriented, so goal-oriented, you know? Almost like anything that you chase is going to run away. <laughs> like, it, you chase happiness, it's not you know, going to immediately be that. Yeah, just be, let things be in their own natural order, you know? And it doesn't mean that you can't uh, have goals. I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm not just saying you just sit on your couch all day and watch Netflix and say, well, I'm going to let my purpose just happen. It takes a lot of hard work, but the hard work should be to set up conditions in your life that you're constantly engaging in meaningful things. And what's the, like, I, I love that you're in, in the book, you shared this experience that David Yaden had around this, like this oh. whole transcendence, transcendental bodily experience where he just knew he was, basically like outside of his body, he was all things, he was nothing. I mean, it's like the pinnacle of having a a true experience. For those of us who who maybe haven't had those, and we think about meaning as we self-actualize and purpose, 
what's it like to know that you're you're engaging in something meaningful? Like, what's that experience? Yeah, uh, Davian's a dear friend of mine, and he talks about that experience that he had. I think that there are certain characteristics that come along the ride of these sorts of uh, transcendent experiences. But one that seems to stand out, which is, uh, I'm going to sound maybe corny for saying it, but is love. And and love for humanity. I I should be so clear. I'm not, again, we're not talking about connection, you know, only for people that, you know, oh, I feel a connection to that person because they share my belief system. Oh, I share a connection with that. Oh, I don't share a connection with that person. I don't like that person because they don't believe what I believe, you know. It, at, the, at a certain level of transcendent experience of meaning, it's not all about you. <laughs> it, it's a, it, it's like about a, a deep abiding connection with the aspects of humanity that we all share with each other, not the things that divide us. And there are so many things that we all share with each other. You know, we, we lose, we miss out on that uh, when we, you know, fight each other over political beliefs or we fight each other, you know, over lots of other things. And sometimes it's important to fight. I'm certainly not uh, suggesting that you shouldn't have any, take a stand for anything, but I'm saying we can miss out on these beautiful connected moments of transcendence when we're so focused in, in defending our, our boat, make sure there isn't a hole in our boat. You know, we're defending it. Make sure that, that I couldn't be wrong. You know, so therefore, I that's why I'm attacking someone, really, because I want to make sure that my ego isn't bruised. It's all about you, you know, but Mm -hmm. transcendence is not about that. And it's a different feeling, you know, transcendence is a different feeling than that feeling of of yelling at someone on Twitter, (laughs) so to speak. Right. It's sort of like it's it's a removal or maybe not a removal, but it's a it's a quieting, as you say, a quieting of the ego and sort of this other thing that comes forward that, you know, people described as feeling connected, which I, I would personally say is like your soul or a spirit really is a spiritual experience. Yeah, me too. Yeah. I, I've often talked about the soul too much to the chagrin of my scientific colleagues. <laughs> well, we are here for it. We're like, we're, we're all, all down that path. So, uh, so I love it. And, and we, we, we love kind of integrating both of those things. You know, it, we haven't talked a lot about where we are right now uh, and that, you know, we're, we're all in quarantine, you know, still and, and, you know, wherever you are, you are, you're likely in some form of shelter in place or quarantine. It's, it's May. How, I mean, your book has come out at such an interesting time, right? Like it, I know. for me, I know. I'm like sitting in, in my apartment reading and taking in all of this information and I'm going, you know, this is incredibly valuable for people right now we're sort of forced to go inside and meet our shadows like how would you oh yes yeah that's so well put that's so so well put we are we've we've never been with ourselves this much you know it's like uh, when you with a partner you start and you move in with them you know after being with them for a while you start to like not like them anymore. <laughs> and we do, it's the same thing with ourselves now for the first time. Try- Don't you love my metaphors? <laughs> my, my metaphors are epic, aren't they? Uh, when, when we move in with ourselves for the first time, it's the same thing. You know, we're suddenly, which is why it's so important to meditate and to have loving kindness for not only others, but for yourself, because there are going to be parts of you that you don't, you don't like, and that's totally cool. That's fine doesn't mean that you you don't you have to not like yourself just because there are parts of you don't like doesn't mean you don't have to like yourself you know you don't have to make that next step which people do 
you know, they maybe have shame over one thing and then they suddenly don't like their whole self and don't realize it's not their whole self. It's you just, you just pick one part of the whole self you said you didn't like, but you know, I could refocus you in many other directions. You know, I, I'm a big fan of strength spotting. I could be like, well, what about this and this and this and this? Well, you like that. What are you going to, you know, <laughs> you, you can't have it one way or the other. You can't just take one bit and not like it or take one bit and then, you know, you can you can just be at peace with 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 everything, and so a lot of a lot of this right now and during COVID is I think coming uh, to have a, a work toward an inner peace, maybe more than 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 anyone has ever um, had uh, to do before. But what a what a great challenge to to work on! What a great goal and opportunity to do it. And you'll be so much the better off for it. You know, like the like the butterfly in the cocoon or the yeah yeah caterpillar caterpillar caterpillar. In the cocoon, I should say. Emerging a beautiful butterfly. Yeah, one of my favorite books is called Hope for the Flowers by Trina Paulus. It's usually can be bought in the spirituality section of the bookstore, but it's a, a book that changed my life. And I ended up becoming friends with the author. And she's like 88 years old now or so. And I just recently did a a, a hope channel for her with, with her. And, and, and it was beautiful. But anyway, that's what that book's all about. Wow. This whole uh, situation is putting us out of choice. Are we choosing, you know, our defense mechanisms and going one way? Or are we choosing love and kindness to ourselves and commitment to our whole self and making that conscious choice to meditate daily and to do the practices and to gain that inner harmony that we're talking about? So question for you, because this has just been on my mind. And I said to Leah prior to this podcast episode that I need to ask this. I'm just curious what you believe happens once we die. Oh my gosh. In as brief as possible. <laughs> I just couldn't not ask. I'm so curious. What do I think? Well, I mean, the, the I had the physicist Sean Carroll on my podcast who said that he's like basically 100% certain that our molecules disperse and that's it. <laughs> it never comes back. It never, we don't ever get a, it, it's, it's impossible. He said it's impossible for those molecules to ever combine in the same way ever again, you know, and, you know, we, de- we decompose and, and there, there's like a real, there's an answer to that question that is explained by physics, you know? Mm-hmm. And I guess personally, I'm, I'm hoping that there's some dimension of reality or something that some curveball that would be a curveball for physicists where like Sean Carroll discovers someday after he dies, he's like, Oh, sh- snap that, that ain't physics, but it happened, <laughs> you know? Uh-huh. I don't know. This is beyond human comprehension. There are things that are beyond human science. Uh, you, you have to have humility as a scientist. You have to. I, I don't like scientists who think they have all the answers. But, you know, there is, there, is, there is a level upon which maybe if we came to terms with where we will never be precisely in this configuration ever again so we really do have to make the best of what we have you know in this we should not if anything it should make us appreciate existence Mm. this it's so precious that that we have this this moment of consciousness that's all aliveness means is consciousness that's all it means you know because when consciousness is, is completely gone we're not alive anymore by our construct we created called aliveness Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I, I'll, I would love to hear your answer. <laughs> Jackie, you got to give it. 
Um, well, I was thinking less from the physicality standpoint and more the spiritual sense. So I do believe that our souls live on and I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't know exactly. I can't give a straight what I think happens, but I do believe that souls live on in some capacity. And so there, you know, my belief is that the way we operate in the physical world and the closer we get to something like transcendence or self-actualization, the better off we are at the next stage in our soul. And so. Interesting. Well, that puts a lot of pressure on you to. That's why I was curious for your answer. <laughs> um, it certainly puts a lot of pressure. You know, I, I don't know. Yeah. This is, this is, this is a, there's so many things beyond human comprehension. The, the universe is, is such a fascinating, vast space. And, that could either scare you to realize just how insignificant you are, or it can energize you to live a life of the fullest meaning you possibly can. And I think that the latter is a healthier way to live your life. Yeah, you're, you're reminding me of one of my favorite books, Seed of the Soul, which talks about the difference between being a five five dimensional or sorry, five sensory human being versus a multidimensional. And so most of us mm. operate as five sensory because we're looking at our five senses. And then to try and explain life beyond our five senses gets really hard. Like the conversation we're having now, it's like, we well, we don't really know. I can't explain the rules. And the thing that gives me hope and energy is that they probably don't even look how we think they do. Yeah, we'll probably, things are perpetually, we're perpetually surprised uh, by by scientific findings. Yeah. And so even as a scientist, I'm, I, I'm always open for my hypothesis to be, to not replicate, <laughs> so to speak. Yeah, I love that you, you mentioned the humility piece. And then, you know, one thing, Scott, for, for our listeners, you know, I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on, as you said earlier, this idea of transcendence or the, you know, moving up the sailboat is the the luxury of human existence. And it sort of made me think that, you know, not everybody gets there, which is, is probable, right? Not everybody, not, well, not there, but maybe not everyone does. You mean, you mean get the opportunity, right? Maybe they don't get the opportunity to self-actualize or they really do stay in the, in the boat. I agree. That's uh, what my whole career has been about is talent loss and, and, uh, you know, the, the ungifted who have been labeled as such, but don't get opportunities to flourish. I am a big believer that we need a, a truly self-actualized society needs is one where we, all of its inhabitants get the opportunity to self-actualize to their full capacity. I don't argue that everyone is capable of reaching the same everything. Not everyone can be a Michael Jordan. You know, you know I, I think that's true. But everyone has the potential to be the best them in the whole world. Uh, only I have the potential to be the best guy, Barry Kaufman, in the world. That, I'm the only one with that potential. And I think it's tragic when we rob people of the opportunities to to become the best version of themselves. And uh, it, it's heartbreaking. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's just what motivated me to go into this field in the first place. I completely agree. You know, I, I, I read some of your story around your, and you mentioned your education. I think for me, it's being a black woman and seeing, you know, people that look like me that don't get opportunities. And I know you mentioned in your book, like, how do we look at people differently and not with our standard that we've used to say you're either smart or you're not, you're capable or you're not, but instead say, what skills do you have based on the way you've experienced the world? And so I, I guess yeah. my, my question really is, 
for those of us who've been given the privilege and the opportunity to, you know, even be talking about this right now and thinking about this, what can we do to help impact the rest of the world? Well, I think that the, this is a point I wanted to make in my book, that there's a fault a false dichotomy between self-development and self-transcendence or, or, or helping others. And I think that it's really important to integrate the two. And just because there are people suffering around you, um, you shouldn't feel guilty for developing and, and, and yourself. And, 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 and the question is in the service of what though? And when you can, this, this highest level of transcendence, this is where we're, we're, we're I felt like there was a whole crescendo in our whole podcast chat today. So your question kind of helped me make the the dunk, you know, so to speak. Um, Yeah, no, you really helped me with that because a big part of my book and why I like Maslow's hierarchy of needs and why I resonated with it, quite frankly, more than some of the discussions in the field of positive psychology that that were happening. Some, you know, there's a lot of that field that's wonderful and there's a lot of good stuff, but I felt like they were ignoring the suffering. And what I wanted to do was to have an integrated view of humanity that didn't ignore the suffering, but showed so clearly how the suffering is so intertwined with the actualization. All this stuff is is so important to to have in a integrated way. And to transcend to our full capacity, we need to develop ourselves. We need to have stability and security. So my answer to your question is if you're in that position where you can do that, you know, don't neglect your well-being. Don't neglect your own uh, self purely in the service of others. Um, that's not healthy. One extreme or the other is not healthy. You know, uh, really be the best. You know, eat well, exercise. And now I sound like your mother, but <laughs> to develop your instrument to its full capacity so that you can be of the best service to others. That is such a beautiful, beautiful point. That's the point yeah. of my book. That's the whole, that's the whole point of my book. Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. That's, Thank that's you. super powerful. And it's, I think, I hope that's what we're all trying to do. I mean, it's what I, it's what I feel. And I feel like, you know, when you have those moments where someone says what you feel and you're like, ah, oh, that's, that's the point. Mm-hmm. Science proves it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And that's, what's so wonderful about what you're, what you're doing as a scientist and putting this all together and making it feel really digestible for us. And thank you so much, Scott, for coming on today. This was such a wonderful conversation. I know we took it in different twists and turns, and I, I appreciate you appeasing me with some of my questions, but learned a ton today wow. and so excited for, for our listeners uh, to read Transcend and, and learn more about what you're up to. Absolutely. And to that end, Scott, where would you like people to go if they want to buy Transcend? Um, I created a uh, webpage, transcend-book.com. So there's a hyphen between the word transcend and the word book. And I have various links where you can purchase it. It's it's on my webpage, uh, but I'll take you right there. All right. And we highly Thank recommend. You. It's been an incredible, incredible to read. Um, like Jackie said, you made it. You made it digestible for us non-scientists um, and uh, and just loved seeing how you're integrating. You're talking about integration, but integrating, you know, the science and the spirituality and, and openness to all of it as we continue to figure out what this human experience is. So thank you so much for for joining us and, and for our listeners. Thank you for, for listening in. We know you took some, some great things away. And, you know, if you'd like to hear more of in the arena, of course, you know where to find us in the arena, iTunes, Google play and Spotify. 
And uh, we will see you all next time. Thanks for joining us on the journey. Have a great day.